Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from our Consumed Sermon Series, which talks about loving God and loving others with everything that we have. We hope that this sermon will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Let's open our Bibles tonight to, uh, to Luke chapter number 14, Luke, 20, Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> our theme for the year uh, is out of Mark chapter 12. Of course, uh, someone came and asked Jesus a question, what is the greatest or weightiest law, our great weightiest commandment? And the Lord's response was, hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, the Lord our God, he is one Lord, he is one God. And because of that, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And from those verses in Mark chapter number 12, we have taken our theme of consumed, uh, loving God and loving people, or loving God and loving others. And so last week, we started a series that we're going to be studying out and um, <clears throat> looking forward uh, to it. This is week number two. We're going to be in it for 10 weeks, and there's going to be a number of men that will preach a different uh, subject about our series, but the series is just called Consumed. And we just want to figure out uh, what a consumed life looks like. Someone who has a consuming love for God and a consuming love for people, what does it look like? How does it play out in our everyday uh, living, in our relationships, in our workplace, uh, um, in our communication with people, in our spirit? Uh, because a consumed Christian, someone who has a consuming love for God, you're not going to be able to hide it. It's just, it's not, it's not going to be well hidden. It's going to be something that people see. And so last week we started the series and we were, <coughs> we were in first uh, John chapter number four, and we took time to realize, uh, dis we discovered how to become consumed. Like, you know, cause maybe we wonder, well, I, I want to have a consuming love for God. I, I want to love God and be consumed with this, but how does it happen? And what we took time to do last week is understand that you can be or will be consumed with a love for God if, number one, if you focus upon his character. Remember, John took time, and in John, uh, really the whole uh, book of 1 John, the direction is about, the focus is on the love of God. 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Halfway through, he says, hey, we can love because God is love. And later on, it's, hey, your love's going to affect other people because you're focusing on God's love in your life. And so if we're going to have a consuming love for God, we've got to focus upon his character. Secondly, we looked at focusing upon having a closeness with God, a closeness with God. We saw this in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 16, that he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. That dwelleth means has a close relationship, abides in. In order to love like God, I've got to be close with God. And really, we could, uh, we could probably preach on that every week, just having a close relationship and a daily walk with the Lord because that's how God instills his spirit into us, and his spirit is what gives us that type of love that we're looking for. 
And then thirdly, we talked about focusing upon our confidence in God and understanding that uh, a believer who's growing and walking with the Lord is going to be confident with the Lord, understanding that when the day of judgment comes, if I've been consumed and loving him from the heart and following after him uh, from the heart, that I can stand before him with confidence. And so last week we talked about how to be consumed. And tonight we're going to continue our study and we're going to look and we're going to take tonight what I've called the consumed test. All right, the consumed test. We spoke <coughs> I, this morning, I talked about how Hannah and I went and we spoke at a college retreat uh, this last weekend. And uh, it's a group of 18 to 25 year olds. And we had a great time. But one of the young men, uh, his name is David. And uh, David, he's a, he's a great guy, uh, but David, he's 25 or 24, and um, he's, he's uh, developmentally disabled and, and slightly handicapped. Um, and we've, I've, we've known David since I think about 2010. I met David when he was first, when he was 16 there at the church, one of the first youth events I spoke at, at Greater Vancouver Baptist Church. And uh, um, ever since then, David's always, he's just such a friendly guy, he's such a friendly kid, and, and he loves the Lord. But I can count on this. Every time I see David, I can count on David talking to me about two things. No matter what's going on, David's gonna come up and he's going to say, hey, Pastor Fountain, have you heard? And he's gonna begin to tell me two things. First, he's gonna tell me about a new song he's written about how he loves the Lord and, and they, he has this, uh, this little band uh, called Sanctified and it's him and some other the college students and they uh, make, make videos and stuff like that and, and he's gonna come up and tell you that. But usually the main topic that he gets to, oftentimes it is before he even has said hello to me, is he'll walk up and he'll go, hey, Pastor Fountain, have you seen my picture? And he'll show me a picture of him in his Taekwondo uniform and his new belt. Every time, ever since he was 16, when he was 16, first started Taekwondo, he said, hello, what is your name? I'm, I'm Dennis Fountain. He said, well, hello, Pastor Fountain. My name is David. I do Taekwondo. I said, well, David, that's awesome. What belt are you? I am a white belt. All right, David, that's exciting, man. And, and then I would go in, in 2012 or 2013 or uh, 2015, and every time he would come up and he'd say, hey, Pastor Fountain, have you seen my new belt? And I'll say, no, David, I haven't. Tell me about it. Well, it didn't fail because this last time, Thursday night, we were sitting at Panda Express um, there in Renton, and the whole group walked into Panda Express, and I look up, and I see a few familiar faces, and in walks David. And David walks in, and, and he, he kind of walks in to the, to the side of me. If Micah was me, he walks in, he goes, <gasps> Pastor Fountain, look. And he showed me his, now he's a, a, a brown belt with a yellow stripe or something like that. And then, you know what he told me? David tells me how hard it is to get a brown belt. Because he goes, Pastor Fountain, didn't you do Taekwondo? Because I told him that years ago. I said, well, yeah, David, but that was... That's 24, 25 years ago. He goes, what belt did you make it to? It's like, I don't remember. He was like, well, I'm a brown belt. Do you know the testing that you have to go through to get brown belt? Pastor Fountain, I had to. And then he proceeds to tell me everything he had to do to get a brown belt. You know, if you've ever done martial arts, then you'll know that 
when you want to test up to the next belt, what you're being tested on is not necessarily your skill or how strong you are. What you're being tested on is what you've learned. That's what you're going to be tested on. And David, when he tests to go test up in Taekwondo, he's not going to be tested on how strong he is. He's going to be tested on what he's learned and what he's paid attention to. And the test is going to tell his masters, his leaders, his instructors, the test is going to tell the instructor if he's approved to wear the brown belt or the brown with yellow stripe. A test always shows us where we're at. Think about a math test. It shows you, if you're a student, you take a math test, it's going to show you where you're at in math, English, any subject in school. So tonight, we're going to take the consumed test. We're going to take this test and ask the Lord, where am I at in this consumed love? Do I have a consuming love? And if I do, how do I know I have it? We're going to go to Luke chapter 14. It's a very familiar passage tonight. And I want you to stand with me as we get into this and and read our, our passage, and we look into our life to see if we're truly consumed. Luke chapter 14, and let's stand together, and let's read Luke 14, verse 25, down through verse number 27. It's just a, a few verses tonight. Luke 14, verse 25 through 27, it says this, and there went great multitudes with him, and he, this is speaking of Jesus, he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's a familiar portion of scripture. If we were to continue on, you would recognize many of the things that you would read later in Luke chapter number 14. But I believe that as we come to Luke 14 tonight, we're going to see what I'm calling that consumed test. It's a test to show us where we're at on having a consumed love for God. So let's pray and then we'll get into our passage. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, why don't you just take a moment and if you will, just in the quietness of your own heart, um, would you ask God to speak to you? Would you commit the time to him and really just... uh, um, your thoughts the next few moments, commit them to him and ask him to work in your life tonight. Dear Lord, again, we thank you for the word of God and I thank you for how you use it to speak into our lives. I want to pray tonight, God, that you'd help us. I pray, Lord, that you'd fill me with your spirit and God, that the words that I say tonight would be yours. I pray, Father, that you'd help each of us to leave desiring to have a consuming love for you and realizing, God, that you, uh, you have first loved us, and it's because of that that we can love you back. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see what a consumed love looks like tonight, and God, that you would challenge each of us uh, for this week. We love you, God, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You go ahead and be seated. 
as you come to Luke 14, give you a little bit of background. Jesus, he's been ministering uh, now for probably about a year and a half. He would be uh, in the area, ministering in the area of Perea. Uh, the Perean region would actually be east of the Jordan River. And I don't have a map up, but <clears throat> it'd be east of the Jordan River and the Perean region. Jesus has been now there for a number of days. He's been pe- uh, preaching and teaching and doing some things. And uh, most recently, what's taken place is Jesus there in, in Perea, he, he's uh, been invited to the house of a chief Pharisee. That's what the Bible calls this man, uh, the house of a, a chief Pharisee. And he's invited there for a meal. As Jesus goes, and you can go back and read a lot of this in the beginning of Luke 14, that as he goes and they sit down at a meal, um, as their custom was, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. They try to, uh, try to trap him by his teaching and, and corner him, maybe asking him a, a question that they know the answer to. And in Luke 14, Jesus actually asks them a question. He asks, uh, is, it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he, they didn't answer him and he healed a man on the Sabbath. And there's all of these things taking place. But as you come to the end or, or the middle of Luke 14 in our passage for tonight, Jesus would be leaving the chief Pharisee's house. He would be going away from this house. And as he's going away, the Bible tells us that he's followed by a great multitude. Do you see that there in verse number four or verse number uh, 25? It says, and there went a great multitudes with him and he turned and said unto them. I want us to talk or think just for a moment about this multitude. If you were to go and we, we will not do it tonight, but if you were to take the time to study it out, you would find that many times in scripture when we read that there was a great multitude that followed Christ, that multitude was not just one group of people. That multitude would be made up from a various uh, types of followers. In the multitude, you would have people that uh, would be there from all walks of life and would be there for all sorts of reasons. You'd have the rich to the poor. You'd have the beggars uh, to those who don't have to beg. You would have uh, the religious to the sinners and everybody in between. That's who would make up this great multitude. And we already know, and we can go back and look at this, but we know that not everybody who walked after or went after Jesus was there for the right reasons. I think of John chapter six, Jesus said to the multitude following then, he said, you're not following me because you want to learn of me. You're following me because I just fed you. And you're talking about the feeding of the, of the thousands. Then Jesus said, hey, you're not following me. You're following, you're following me because of the miracles that I do. There were others like the Pharisees. They weren't following because of the miracles. They were following because they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to corner him. There were others that they were following, uh, not because of the miracles and not because of, uh, of wanting to trap Jesus, but they were following just because it was new. Uh, Jesus was this kind of new phenomenon taking place. And especially, and you can go and, and look at all this, uh, about a year into Christ's ministry, you'll see uh, um, the words describing it to be, instead of just a great amount of people, it'll be great multitudes and be plural. And you'll see it kind of grow exponentially. And all of that was taking place because it was just kind of a phenomenon. It was just something that was taking, man, this, this is new. Who's this Jesus guy? I've heard that he does this. And they weren't there for the miracles. They were there just because it was kind of new. Then you have uh, another group of people. They would be those that I would probably call fringe followers. 
They're, they're there, they've, they've seen two or three miracles. They're interested in that it, the fact that it's new, but they're also intrigued a little bit by the teaching because Jesus really did come on board and say some things that were contrary to popular belief. Go read the Sermon on the Mount and research uh, the historical context and you'll find out that everything Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount was completely polar opposite uh, to what was being taught. So you have these fringe followers. Then I'm gonna say that after the fringe followers, you have people who, they're, they're what we would call interested. They're not fringe, they're, they're interested. They're not very interested, they're just, they're just interested in what Jesus has to say. And then you would have the real people. You would have the real followers, the ones who are there because yes, they've watched Jesus do miracles, but they've seen Jesus work in their own life. <coughs> so knowing all of that, we know the people groups that are making up this multitude. And I want you to notice what happens because as Jesus leaves <clears throat> and this multitude made up of all of these people, as they begin to follow him, Jesus turns and he begins to speak on the subject of real followership or real discipleship. And Jesus did this a lot when people followed him. And we don't have time to go and see all the places where Jesus taught on it, but the fact of the matter is when Jesus taught on real discipleship or real followership, he taught on it because, if I can say it this way, Jesus is not interested in what we would call nominal Christianity. He's not interested in just people who are there because it's the cool thing to do or people who are there because of the miracles. Jesus isn't interested in that. Go read many of his teachings and uh, I, I, I continually am drawn to John 6 when Jesus taught them hard sayings and many followed not after that day. Many walked away. Why? Because Jesus was teaching, listen, I'm interested in real Christians. I'm interested in real disciples. You see, Jesus, he's not interested in people just claiming his name. It is God's plan to have real followers, true followers who are disciples or learners of the teachings and the ways of Jesus. Knowing that, that sounds to me, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus is interested in people being consumed. That's what it sounds like to me. He's interested in people being, uh, having a consuming love for him, being uh, all in with Jesus. And so, knowing that Christ is interested in people being consumed, I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to just notice just two simple thoughts tonight about what will take place in your life when you are consumed. When you have a consuming love, what will it look like? Don't you see, first of all, that when I have a consuming love, it means I will have what we're calling a superior love. It means I'll have a superior love. Look at verse number 26. <clears throat> Jesus says this, if any man come to me, that come to me, it means come after me or becomes a disciple. 
And hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also. He cannot come to me. He cannot be my disciple. Now, I have to say, and I think I've said it before preaching the passage, I know I've said it before, that when some people hear this verse, some people get excited because they're like, that's pretty easy to hate my family. I don't like them anyway. <laughs> and people look at this verse and have an excuse. Oh, well, there's my excuse. Bible says I must hate my family. See y'all. And they just have that mindset. There's others then that they say, you know, I could never follow a God that told me to hate my family. So when you look at this verse, what is it that Jesus is saying? Is Christ saying you need to have literal hatred for your family in order to be a follower of Jesus? No, he's not. Well, how do we know that? Because that disagrees with other principles in Scripture. So what is Jesus saying then? If he's saying you need to hate your family, what's he saying? This verse, I'll just kind of cut right to it. This verse is not giving you reason to literally hate your family, nor, does it, nor is it telling you to hate your family. No, it's simply saying, as one man said, our love for Christ, it must be so strong that all other love is like hatred in comparison. Our love for Christ must be so strong that all other love is like hatred in comparison. The focus in verse number 26 is not on the disciple literally hating their family. The focus is actually on the disciple loving Christ more than anything. Compared to your love for the Lord, the love you have towards anything else in your life should look like or will look like hatred. Even compared to your love for your own life. You see Jesus in that verse, he says, yea, and hateth his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is simply saying, listen, if you are going to come after me, if you are going to follow me, if you're going to be a real follower, if you're going to be a consumed Christian, then you must have a love for me and all other loves will pale in comparison. All other loves will look like hatred. You see, the believer's love for Christ, it should outdo our love for people. It should outdo our love for things. It should outdo our, our love for uh, relationships and circumstances. Our love for Christ should really outdo any love and make those loves look like hatred. The truth is today that the reason most people are not consumed or had, do not have a consuming love for God, the reason is because most people love things or others more than they love the Lord. I want to ask you a question tonight, and I've asked it before. I want you to think about this. What or who do you love more than Jesus? The automatic answer that we give is, well, nothing. I'm here on a Sunday night. I mean, I, I love Jesus. I read my Bible a few times this week. I, I love Jesus. I told someone about the Lord, I love Jesus. You know, there's a really easy way to find out if you love something or someone more than you love Christ. If you have kids or a spouse, ask them, what's a priority in my life? 
hey, what do I love? What do, you, what do you think I love the most? And if that spouse is honest, or if that, those children are thinking about it, sometimes they'll go, well, Dad, Mom, you sure do, you sure are on your phone a lot. You spend a lot of your time looking at your phone. Well, son, I just want to ask you, what, what, do you, what does Daddy spend his most, most time doing? Well, Dad, you spend most of your time out in the garage working. Hey, honey, what, is, what does Mom do a lot? What do I spend my time doing? Well, Mommy, you, you watch a lot of TV. Ask your kids. They'll be honest. If you don't have kids, ask your grandkids. If you don't have people that live in your family, just ask someone close to you. Hey, what's important to me? If you can't ask somebody close to you, go look at your bank account. What have you spent the most money on? What have you given the most money to? Bank account, what do I love the most? Well, <clears throat> you look at your bank account and it says, you sure do love fast food a lot. Well, a guy's got to eat. Yeah, but if I'm investing more in what I'm eating than investing in the house of God, I'm not talking about you have to give more to church than you do to eating. I'm talking about the, the bank account shows priority. Ask your family what you love. You can ask your bank account what's important to you. If you could, if you could question your time and ask your time what's important to you, your time would share back what you love the most. You could ask friends. You, you really, we, and, and I'm not going to belabor this thought, but you get the idea that if you want to know what you love the most, find out where you're investing the most of your life. And you see, tonight, some believers here need to understand that Christ, he wants you to have a superior love for him over anything. Because it is only if we have a superior love that we're really having a consuming love. Some people, they love themselves more than they love God. Some people, they love uh, their sleep more than their time with God. Some, they love maybe uh, um, some exercise more than they love God. There's some, they love work. I mean, we don't, I'm, not, I'm not gonna just go down the line. We all know what, like we looked at this morning, we know what we worship and give our time to more than God. Well, you know what verse number 26 is saying? God's saying, Jesus is saying, you can't come after me if your love for me doesn't make everything, your love for everything else look like hatred. You gotta have a superior love for me. That's what a consuming love is made up of, a superior love. I'm reminded in the book of Revelation to one of the churches, Jesus said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. Man, you've gotten away from your first love. If I'm going to be consumed, then I must have a superior love for the Lord. But I want you to notice, secondly, out of verse number 27, that when I have a consuming love, it not only means that I have a superior love, but verse 27 helps us see that it means I have a surrendered love. I have a surrendered love. Notice verse 27, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is a really strong statement, and I want us to see why, because it's here that Jesus says, hey, listen, unless you are willing to sacrifice and surrender everything to me, you cannot be my disciple. 
unless you are willing to have a surrendered love, a love that says, Jesus, you have access into every single compartment of my life. If you can't do that, then you're not going to be living consumed. You're not going to be living as a real disciple. When you look at uh, this verse, we see two elements in it. We see, first of all, that Jesus says, yeah, you've got to bear the cross. I've preached this uh, many times before, and we've seen it in our, our uh, Acts series. We saw it in Colossians. Uh, we've seen it in different topical series. We've been through our In His Step series a couple years ago. Uh, the phrase, bear the cross. Now, we need to know that when Jesus was giving this, that was a big deal. When Jesus was saying, and he said it in, in uh, Luke chapter number nine and Matthew, uh, I forget which passage, but Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And the idea was you're going to take up ridicule. The cross was not a good uh, 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 emblem that was looked upon well. It wasn't something that people did. I mean, you didn't, uh, people didn't wear little cross necklaces. They didn't get uh, tattoos of crosses on their arm and put a little uh, cross emblem on their Camelac. Did you catch that? Anyway, they didn't do that. They didn't, they, it, it wasn't about a, a, a symbol. No, to bear the cross, to bear the cross was to identify with a custom, a Roman custom of execution. It would be like us wearing an uh, uh, electric chair emblem around our neck or getting an electric chair uh, tattoo or putting on our, on our uh, bumper sticker, you know, I love the electric chair. And I'm not talking about just supporting um, the death penalty. This was Jesus saying, if you're gonna follow me, you've gotta be willing to be identified with me and that may take some sacrifice. That may mean giving up some things. It may mean losing some things. It may mean a different life than what you're experiencing right now. You see the cross, it stood for shame and ridicule and pain. And Jesus said, you've got to bear it. You've got to take it up. If you're going to bear the cross, you're going to be willing to sacrifice anything. That's what a surrendered love says. A surrendered love says, God, I'm willing uh, to give up or I'm willing to sacrifice anything. You see, consumed Christians, they're willing to sacrifice, but Christians nowadays... Most Christians, we don't know what sacrifice means. We often want what one man called easy street Christianity. We want comfort. We want to make sure that uh, we want to make sure that the sermon isn't too long. Now I praise the Lord for a gracious church because I understand that sometimes I preach long. I was counting on you, Gordon. <coughs> But listen, there, there's some people, and I praise the Lord, we don't have this a lot in our church, but there's some people, uh, I remember when we were on staff, they'd walk up to my dad at 12.05 and say, Pastor, it is 12.05. Do you realize that we are supposed to be done at 12? And I praise the Lord for my dad's grace. Because I would have looked at him and said, oh, I didn't know that that was a prerequisite written, written down on our website. Church will be done at 12. I didn't know our hours said 1045 to 12. I'd be a smart aleck. Dad would just say, well, good thing I didn't go to 1220. <laughs> Have a great day. See you next week. You know, <clears throat> listen, there's some Christians, we want comfort. Make sure the sermon's not too long. 
There's some Christians, they want uh, comfortable worship. Micah, did you know, and I've talked about it before, well, Micah, that, that song that you sang, that wasn't my favorite song. <laughs> Micah, you taught us a new song tonight. I bet that wasn't even written until like two years ago. We can't do that. We have to sing songs be, written before 1910. If you don't, that's in the Bible. It is Hezekiah 12. You say, pastor, that's ridiculous. No, listen, there are some Christians that we want our Christianity. Well, that, that's, I'm just not comfortable with that. Maybe it's time to be uncomfortable. Well, I'm just not, uh, you know, Brother Dan, when you get up to preach, you know, sometimes you, you kind of, what, what do you say? You kind of... Uh, Shook the corn, is that, is that, what, that, is that what you call Shake the bush. You surf the board. Uh, I don't know what you do. Shuck the corn, that's what that one, that's what that one is. Shuck the corn. And man, someone will be like, Brother Blim, Brother Dan, you, you got up and you, you shucked the corn today and I wish you would stop shucking the corn because I don't like when you, I don't like when you get animated. I don't like when you scream. Pastor, we had that Dave McCracken in. He stood up on a chair. I don't like that. Oh, we had that, we had that one fella in, Pastor Davison. And the whole time he was preaching, it felt like he was screaming at me. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? I'm talking about people that we look at our Christianity and we want it to be form-fitted. We want, we, want custom, we want custom made Christianity. We want something that is just our taste or is just within our time or, well, you know, it's like the one family. They, they came to the pastor and they said, pastor, we really, we would love to be more involved in church. We'd love to be, we would love to be faithful. But pastor, Monday, it's a really busy day. And we have revival coming up. Mondays, it's, it's Billy's basketball practice. And Tuesday, well, that's, that's our daughter's soccer practice. On Wednesday night, it's bowling league. And Thursday night, well, Thursday night's date night. Can't give that one up. And Friday night, because of date night, we always do family night on Friday. And Saturday's always tournaments. So don't you understand that Sunday's our only day off? That's the day I'm gonna do all my yard work. That's the only day I have. You say, Pastor, people say that? Yeah, and again, I'm not saying I, we've had this issue in our church. I praise the Lord. I, I'm thankful for our church, but I am saying that there are a lot of Christians that we want easy, comfortable Christianity. We will serve God if it fits in our agenda. I'll serve God. I'll follow God. I'll surrender to God. I'll sacrifice for God if it fits in my weekly schedule. And we go, well, I don't know about that. I, man, church on Thursday? Oh, my DVR went out. I, I have my favorite shows on. Now, I'm using drastic illustrations, but we get the idea. There's a lot of Christians. You know what that is? That's not consumed Christianity. That's not having a consuming love. But here's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to have a consuming love, you've got to have a surrendered love. You've got to be able to say, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to surrender. I'm willing to follow God no matter the cost. 
The phrase was bear the cross. The second phrase Jesus says was, you've got to come after me. You've got to come after me. That come after me, it means to make Christ your life pursuit. It means to follow indefinitely. It means to follow with purpose or to follow intentionally. Paul said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul was saying, hey, I have one goal. I want to know him. I want to get to know who Jesus is. And I just want you to see that being a, a follower of Jesus or being a real disciple means that I'm going to continually seek him and pursue him and be engaged in the relationship with him. And if you and I are going to do this, it might require a little bit of time sacrifice. Following Christ requires a little bit of me and my energy. Let me give you very quick, uh, three quick disciplines that someone who is following Christ does. We follow Christ through Bible study. We know this. Follow Christ by being intentional about getting into the word of God. And we follow Christ uh, by not just opening up and just kind of reading a verse for the day, but wanting to meet with God and experience God's presence and learn more about him and understand his character and have the Holy Spirit work inside of us and help us uh, see and get a better glimpse of our Savior. It's Bible study. We, uh, we follow after him through Bible study. We follow after him through daily prayer. This isn't just God bless my meal. This is spending sufficient time with God, asking him for his help that day and yielding to him and being surrendered to him and asking God uh, to be in our thoughts and in our actions. And this is worshiping him and giving thanks to him and, and confession to him and taking our requests to him and understanding what First Thessalonians says to pray without ceasing that that uh, continual communication is going going on before God. This is going to be something that's taking place in, in the life of someone who has a surrendered love. Another way that we do this, that we go after Christ is through corporate worship. Man, we had that lesson this morning out of Hebrews and Ephesians, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching, understanding that God wants this to, he wants Christianity to be a group effort and he's ordained the church, the group of called out people to come together and to worship him. And what does that do? That instigates growth. It, it, it helps growth take place in my life. It, it cultivates the ground of my heart and allow the word of God uh, to sink in and changes to be made. And these things are just things that someone's going to do if they're following after Christ. We sing the song and we have it played for invitational every now and then, the song, I Surrender All. But what's sad is there's a lot of Christians, they sing, I surrender some, I surrender some. And it's, there, it's not I surrender all. That's not a consuming love. Because Jesus said a consuming love says, I surrender all. I have a surrendered love. Can I say tonight that no one should have more surrender in their relationship than a follower and a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ? Christians are put to shame with our fellowship. I mean, you think about it. We have people in this world that they will have ultimate surrender to their false gods and go and blow themselves up. 
we were talking today. I don't know why it came up at lunch, but at, at lunch with the kids, one of them said, uh, what, what day was it that the Twin Towers fell down? And uh, what time was it? What time did the Twin Towers get taken down? And one of them said, man, I, I wish we had a time machine. Dad, I think it's Micah. Dad, you think if we went back and we took out those terrorists, if we just went back and just killed them, we took them out, you think that it would change a lot of life right now if 9-11 didn't happen? And you know what? We, we can't go back and do all that, but what does 9-11 remind us of? It reminds me of the fact that there's people out there willing to give their life for false hope. That's why, that's why the terrorists did it. It was in the name of their religion. We have, we have cults right now, and they'll go around, and we have plenty of them here in Moses Lake. They'll go around in their uh, black, black pants, a white shirt, a little name tag, 19-year-old kid. And he'll say, Elder Jones. And Elder Jones, he can barely tie his shoe, but he's Elder Jones. And he'll give up two years of his life to go to some place, and I've met him from Texas and from uh, New York and met him from California, met him from Utah, and they'll give up two years of their life and be completely committed to their God. And here we have Christians with the truth. I mean, we're not believing in a cult. Our, listen, our leader wasn't arrested 14 times for fraud. Our leader didn't marry 12-year-olds. Our leader didn't have over a dozen wives and plenty of children by more women. No, that was the other guy. Our leader said, follow me. Follow me and I'll show you real love. And he went to a cross and he died for sin that he never committed. And it's proven through Scripture and proven historically. And we don't need history for it. We have the Bible. But history proves it too. And yet we have Christians that can't even spend time reading the Word of God each week. And we have Christians that we, we, can't, we can't witness to coworkers. And we have Christians that we say, oh, I love Jesus, but not that area of my life. Man, listen, I want us to be challenged tonight in just this truth. We need more believers with a consuming love. What's a consuming love look like? It's a superior love. It makes all other love look like hatred. What's a consuming love look like? It's a love that is a surrendered love that says, God, you can have all of me. You can have every part of my life. God, I want my time to be yours. I want my words to be yours. I want my actions this week to be yours. God, I want your spirit to lead me. God, I want to yield to you. I want to understand Romans that uh, who I yield myself, servants to obey, as servants you are to whom you obey. And, and God, I want to be yielded to you. Our culture has enough partial Christians. Believers who are Christians in name only, man, they're a dime a dozen. There's a lot of people out there that just claim it, but don't live it. But I want to challenge you tonight to have a consumed Christianity, a Christianity that says, God, I will love you more than anything, and God, I will love you with a surrendered love. And the fact of the matter is this, that if I'm going to have a consuming love for God, I must have a superior and a surrendered love for God.
Luke 14, 26 and 27. If you're gonna come after me, if you're gonna come to me and hate not father and mother and brethren and sisters and, and uh, he goes through the list there and says in your own life also, you can't be my disciple because if you're gonna follow me, you've gotta bear the cross. Bear the cross and then truly come after me. I wanna challenge you tonight to make a decision that this week is gonna be a week where you have a consuming love for God. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you would like further information about our church, please visit moseslakebaptistchurch.com.